The word radical, at least for the present, seems to be a ruined word. From the radicals of the communistic revolution to the radicals of the 1960s, who were against all forms of oppression and therefore against any institution or tradition that supported it, to the radicals of today, willing to die and taking as many unwilling and unsuspecting victims with them, this word has indeed fallen on hard times and to very bad company. But it was not always that way. The word originated in the 14th century from the Latin radicalis, of or relating to roots, rootedness. Its base word was radix. From that word we get the word radish, a root plant, or eradicate, the removing of all roots. Since a root is at the bottom of something, radical came to describe what is basic, or at the base of something, something fundamental. Only later did it come to mean a radical change from what was before and had that sense of a reformatory movement. And I think it would be helpful for us to consider both of those meanings this evening. The title of this conference, Radical Practice, implies something. For there can be no radical practice without a radical individual. Radical practices arise from radical individuals. But radical individuals come from radical characters, which come from radical mindsets. So in order for us to move towards a radical practice, it won't be a single step. It starts with a mind that sees and understands and perceives the world much in the same way that Jesus and Paul saw the world. Few changes, therefore, can be considered more radical than the transformation of a pagan into a Christian. For the first century world was a world of myth and magic, of gods and goddesses. Life is only comprehensible through a thousand local gods, said one commentator of the time. Life was not a series of choices, but a series of events controlled by passionate and often frenetic gods who created chaos in the lives of mortals. The individual tried to stay ahead of these by a series of sacrifices or ceremonies. For who would not choose the good or normal life over one that was cursed? One's future was written in the stars, but through divination you might be able to ascertain that future and somehow alter its course. Through oracles, stargazing, and interpretation, through omens acknowledged and events avoided, one might be one of the fortunate or lucky ones. And thus, even today, we have the residual of that in the phrase, oh, I thank my lucky stars. Not only was your thought world colored by these ideas, but your actual world was dominated by their presence. And it was according to these 
societal expectations, and normative worship patterns to the gods that you moved forward. For at the time, it made no difference that your gesture of worship to the pagan gods and act did not concern itself with accompanying belief. Indeed, at that time, the word religio meant to observe Roman religious ceremonies, the act, and not your inward thought or belief was what mattered. It was in this context and thought world that Paul pens one of the most remarkable letters, or shall we say, one of the most radical letters of the New Testament, the letter to the Colossians. Colossae was located about 100 miles east of Ephesus in what is west-central Turkey. Rome had conquered and controlled this Greco-Phoretian region, known as the place where the east meets west. Great roads passed through the region from the major harbors of the east, from the major harbors of the west to the great cities of the east, such as Babylon. And it was on this trade route that Colossi found herself situated, having begun as a trade station. At one time, a very large and prosperous city, a great city of Phrygia, as it had called, it had sunken into relative obscurity when the more prosperous city of Laodicea was built only 10 miles away. In 8061, they had a terrific earthquake in this area that had leveled the city of Colossae. The city of Laodicea had no problem recovering. As a matter of fact, the emperor offered to completely rebuild the city of Laodicea But the Laodiceans were too rich and completely refused his offer, choosing to build it themselves. The Colossians had no such benefactors. And thus, while Laodicea recovered splendidly, Colossae never did, sinking even further into obscurity. Now, in the afternoon of its influence and importance, this sidelined and almost forgotten city receives a letter from Paul. Without a doubt, the least important church to which any epistle of Paul is written. To the best of our knowledge, Paul never visited Colossae. In chapter 1, verses 4 and 9, he speaks only of hearing of their faith. Nevertheless, this small church was a product of Paul's ministry. For three years in the mid-50s, Paul had preached the word with incredible power in Ephesus from the lecture hall of the school of Tyrannus. And during this time, it is said in Acts 19 that all of Asia had heard the word of God. It seems during this time there was a young man who had come and heard Paul by the name of Epaphras. He had heard the gospel from Paul and was converted. Now, having a burden for his own, Paul trains and prepares Epaphras to return to his hometown of Colossae to begin a church, according to chapter 4. 
But trouble had arisen. Epaphras could not bear to see the gospel left aside. He could not bear to see its light extinguished. He therefore hurried off to Rome, where Paul bends this letter from his imprisonment. He then sends this letter, the letter to Philemon, whose house church was the church in Colossae and Ephesians. Three letters to be hand-carried and delivered. Thus comes from Paul's heart this writing. One of Paul's most sublime letters giving us a small glimpse of the magnificence of Christ. Stretching from an eternity past to a distant horizon we cannot even see. Of all the treasures we could speak of in this small book, I'd like to direct your attention to two verses in chapter 2. Colossians, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And I'd like you to pay particular attention to the verbs in this verse. Reading from Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, just as you received Jesus Christ the Lord, in him walk, having been rooted and now being built up in him, and being established in the faith, just as you were taught. Six verbs describe the radical Christian life. And I'd like to spend some time considering each of those verbs. Received. Just as you received. Paul here reminds the Colossians they had received something. He, Paul, had also received this. He had passed it on to Epaphras, who had passed it on to them. Paul speaks here as a delivery man, as a messenger. He had delivered to them the most important message the most important gift they would ever receive. He speaks of this delivery more fully in the book of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, Now my brothers and sisters, I made known to you the gospel that I proclaimed to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which you are also being saved. By the word I proclaimed to you, For indeed, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to scripture. That phrase, Christ died for our sins, is what Paul had received. They were the sweetest words to Paul's ears. Here was the solution to Israel's need, to his personal failure, and to the inadequate pagans' way of life and systems. In this phrase is the gospel in a nutshell. Here is the summary and end point of the whole Old Testament, a system drenched with the blood of sacrifice. He had a problem, God, that no earthly solution could be found for, not even cute little lambs. God had a problem that love, not justice, had created, for justice could have just left us alone. But that was not God's way. God's way was to take into himself all that was wrong with the world. It's shame. 
It's guilt. It's fear. It's horror. It's filthiness. It's sinfulness. It's crudeness. To take it into himself and into the grave. Sheol, that second death experience. And yet, in the violence that man produced against his maker, against his own father, is the divine solution to our insolvable human problem. In God's sacrificial offering of himself, his life for ours is the death of the old, the rebirth of our lives, and the beginning of God's new creation on this earth. As his life flowed out, so did our sin and all that was wrong with this present creation. Now, the basis for the final answer to sin had come, even though we yet don't see it in its final form. Christ died for our sins. They are no longer ours. They are his. They have been left in the grave with his grave clothes. Christ himself has buried your sin and mine. Therefore, they are truly taken away. For us, they are no more. Christ died for our sins. Thus, you must know that your sin has been borne away and forgiven. Your ledger book is clear. Your debt has been eradicated. In that book, you look in vain for proof of the wretchedness of your life. And all you see, page after page, is the righteousness of Christ. It is your new book in him, and from its reading, from the first page to the last, there is only one word to be found, justified. Christ died for our sins. You've been set free. No longer a slave, held to what kept you in an absolute bondage. Like the ringing of the Liberty Bell after the Declaration of Independence. Like the ringing of the bells after the Emancipation Proclamation. You can hear but one thing. Free, free, free at last. Thank God in Christ I am free at last. His accompanying doublet phrase is, In him walk. How did Paul receive the gospel? By faith. How did Epaphras receive the gospel? By faith. How had the Colossians received the gospel? By faith. How does anyone ever receive the gospel? By faith. Paul's first set of twin terms is that as you received in him, live. How did you receive? By faith. How do you walk? By faith. Faith is the only way of the Christian. It is the beginning of the Christian walk. It is the way to Christ, and it is the way to stay there. The beginning is faith. The middle is faith. And the end is faith. So Paul says in Romans 1, from faith to faith. So what part is not faith? None. It is all of faith. And that's why Paul uses the term in Romans for the steps of faith. To speak of Abraham and his descendants. Step after step after step. Faith upon faith upon faith. 
The promise, Paul says, is to those walking in the steps of Abraham, our father. If it was good enough for the father of the faithful, shouldn't it be good enough for his sons and daughters? Or should we who've begun this way in faith finish off in the flesh? You see, we were not there at that critical moment. For where were you when Christ died for you? Did you in any way help Christ die for you? Your help comes only 2,000 years too late. It's already finished. It's his finished work, just as creation is his finished work. And God did it all without you. Imagine that. God didn't need your help to procure your salvation. God did it all by himself. He and his son, without your assistant, aid, comfort, or help. And that's because it had to be a perfect gift. And yet this unspeakable gift he deeds to you, he gives to you completely as a free gift. And that's why Paul could say in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ by faith. Remember, Paul was three years late to this event as well. Nevertheless, I live. And yet, it will be never me who lives again, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live, I live by how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, we receive this salvation by faith. We now live this salvation by faith. Faith step after faith step. Moment by moment, day by day, year by year, until the day of his glorious appearing. The next pair of dual verbs, rooted and built. Having been firmly rooted when Paul and his associates rooted someone in Christ, they might have well been pouring concrete, and I mean thick concrete. You were not going to pull up this plant. That root, remember, and that's the basis of the word radical, that root grew and took with such tenacious energy that all the might of Rome could not overcome it. Not ancient Rome, not papal Rome. They could not eradicate this plant. They tried to kill it, burn it, fight it, expulse it, beat it, feed it to the lions, and nothing worked. It grew and it multiplied and it multiplied and grew. And the reason they could not is because it was a plant of God's own making. This plant had its origin in the mind and heart of God a plant for the recovery of the people, a tree for the healing of the nations. And so we read in Isaiah 53, 2, he grew up before him like a tender green shoot, like a root out of parched ground. Who is it here? It is his servant, his son, his suffering servant son, who is despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with our grief, and one of whom we did not want to look on because he was 
despicable to us and someone we did not want to esteem. For of a truth, our diseases he himself bore, our pains he carried, yet we for our part esteemed him stricken of God, smitten of God with our own very leprosy. This despised man was now Paul's man, now in the grip of God through Christ. He saw reality for what it was. He was firmly planted in Christ, and he now had become a planting, sowing agent for God, scattering the seed of God's rich mercy and grace in Christ far and wide. His seed teaching had reached Colossae and found fertile soil there where the gospel had taken root. These Colossians had previously been rooted in the world. Having heard the gospel, they had become rooted in a new reality. They had been transplanted. Now they belong to Christ and to him alone. As Paul reminds them in chapter 1, he, Christ, has delivered you from the dominion of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. When I think of this rooted concept, a certain picture comes to my mind. It's a picture I actually saw in a book cover, and this cover shows a cross above the ground, but beneath the surface of the soil, you see this strong, rich, intricate patterns of roots holding The cross of history is what gives the hidden rooting to the Christian life. And for each one of us, the question comes, is that the rooting of my life? For if it is, it is a seed that shall never die. For as the Lord said, he that believes is rooted in me shall never die. You may sleep, but you will never die. For as one of our Christian forebearers said in the faith, Christians never say goodbye. Now this rooting is paired with another word, and that's being built. Rooted is the aorist or past tense. Being built is the present continuous form of what God is doing now. This is the present form of what God is doing in the life of Christians. God is in the process of building, of sculpturing, of creating a divine form. In the garden, God knelt and made man of the dust of the earth. What came out of the hand of the creator was almost beautiful beyond description. But its true worth was not in its external condition, but in its image. This creature was the first ever of its kind. It was specifically made in the image of God, in the image of its maker. And its glorious purpose was to be an image bearer. A human who in some extraordinary way not only models after God, but models for God. A showing forth in miniature. But the advent of sin and death in our world thwarted God's purpose. And what man became was in no way pretty. Is this the representation of God? 
So God begins a painfully slow process to mend a rent creation. Figures come and go in God's great play as he moves to his decisive moment. And so it comes, that period when the universe holds its corporate breath. For 33 years, they see what God's image was to look like in the most unpromising and hostile environment possible. And finally, the same God who knelt in the garden to make man out of the dust kneels again, grasping the dust, flailing in the dust, in order to pull man out of the dust from which there's no return. And then comes the climax, as difficult for heaven to comprehend as it was for earth. Now apparently neither the man of heaven or the man of earth, he is suspended between the two, left to expire. Is this it? Oh, no, it's not. Bursting forth in unconquerable, immortal resurrection life, ascending to the pinnacle of heaven. Seated now at the right hand of God, he sends forth his spirit to us on earth while he makes impregnable intercession for us in heaven. And in this process, a new thing begins. God again kneels down in and through his second Adam. His first externally sculptured beauty now has been purposed for a far more exceedingly beautiful goal, the inward sculpturing of the man Christ Jesus in you, written on the heart, molded on the inward parts. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is what God is building, forming, sculpturing, And nothing under all creation will thwart his purpose this time around. Its early forms and features could already faintly be distinguished in the features of the Colossian believers. This is God's plan, God's purpose in Christ Jesus, in the image of Christ. In this shifting age when everyone is looking for an experience, for a project, God lays out one purpose that surpasses all. The last pair of dual verbs, established and taught. Being established in the faith just as you were taught. Having reminded the Colossians what they had received and how they were to walk, what they had been rooted in and how they were now to be built, Paul adjures them to be established in what they were taught. How does this urging of Paul find you tonight? Are you established in the truths of Jesus Christ? Not only the first truths of his life, death, and resurrection. Have you built a life in faith on these fundamentals of the gospel and its implications? Is that your rooting? Is that your building? See, the Colossians had received the word of God from the lips of Epaphras. They had started out on the way. But at some point, other philosophies and other ideas had begun to creep in and to obscure what they should have known, what they should have been firmly established in. 
That was the great temptation of the Colossians. And it is still the greatest temptation of Christians today. Something else. So what were these key concepts that had been taught, that they had been established in by Paul? Fullness and completeness. Fullness and completeness in Christ. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception which are based on human ideas and spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. The incipient philosophy that Paul alludes to here taught that God had many emanations. These flowing forth from God were a series of hierarchical descending radiations from God through intermediate stages. Paul cuts this off at the root in verse 9. For in Christ, the whole fullness of God bodily dwells. The whole fullness, not some portion, not some part, not some fragment or a start. No, it is the whole fullness of God. Christ is not some lesser flowing out of God. He is God in him very self. And thus Paul implores the Colossians, don't go anywhere else looking, only for what God can do. Who or will give you more than the creator of all things that exist? This is the great God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth. But even greater than that is that he now dwells in bodily form. He now lives, he exists in a physical form. Contrary to what you have heard about the evil of matter, the great God of heaven now lives in body. Do you know what that means? Everything we need, we have in this God-man. All the power of God now exists in human form, form like yours and mine. If there is fullness is him, and there is fullness because the fullness of God does live in him, then there is fullness for you because he lives in you, because he has transferred you into his kingdom, and because he is yours. If there is not fullness in him, we have to look for it somewhere else to supply that deformity. But thank God in Christ, there is no such deformity, only fullness. In no uncertain terms, Paul proclaims, you are full in him. In Colossians 2, 3, he says, in whom are hidden all, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Sophia Gnosis. What the protognostics had been offering, you already have in him. In him, you have fullness, like can be found in no place, no person, and no philosophy. None. And if that is not enough, Paul goes on to say in verse 10, what they had been taught, what they had been established in, Namely, ye are complete in him. Paul speaks of their completeness in Christ. Ye are complete in him. When you completed kindergarten, how many of you went back 
once you received your completion certificate. Did you ever do it again? Once you got it, who of you would consider going back? No, when something like that is complete, you don't go back again. You are complete in him. Have you ever really considered the import of those words? We usually skip right over it. But you don't know me. I have so many loose ends. I have this and that and, and so many excuses we put forward ad item. But the message from heaven is, you are complete in him. Any future completion, any future perfection, any future anything in this life or the life to come, you already have as your present possession in Christ. It may be in seed form. It may be in sprout form. It may be only in sapling form. But it is there. Christ is not what God will give you. Christ is what God has already given you. You are complete in him. You are full in him. That's why Paul was saddened to think that any other way, any other philosophy could compare with what they had and have and will have in Christ. The ceremonies of Judaism, the philosophies of the Stoics, and the fullness of the mystics, none of them could compare with the matchless, matchless completeness they have in Christ alone. Growing up, I loved camping and hiking. So I purchased what was considered the Bible of hiking and camping at that time called the Complete Walker. The thing that made this book so interesting was the cover of the book had a picture of everything this gentleman kept in his backpack, and there was a lot of things. And so what I did as a child was slowly, the book described the different places you could get it, why you needed to get that piece, And so what I did was slowly over time start acquiring little by little those various items. But the problem was the time considerations, the money, and at some point I just wasn't able to continue with this project. Still in love with those items, though, I began to imagine, what if I had the ability to shrink all my equipment into the size of a matchbox? If I took that matchbox with me everywhere... I could just inflate it and presto. Everything I needed or wanting for my camping trip would be right there. It's been years since I thought those childhood thoughts. But as I prepared for this talk, it came back to me vividly. Everything the complete walker was for me as a child, I now possess in Christ. I don't need a magical miniature matchbox in my pocket. Within me, deep within my soul, I carry that treasure called Christ. As small as a thought presence, yet as large as the universe, in that person, I have the complete walker. Everything I need, everything you need for the complete Christian life is in him. And thus Paul would say in Galatians, walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, bear fruit to the Spirit. Because 
It is the very spirit of Christ. Lest anyone think this somehow undermines the law. It is the same Paul who said all this was so that the righteousness of the law could be fulfilled in us. But that righteousness of the law is Christ and Christ alone. And love through the Spirit becomes the means by which that law is fulfilled, whether it's the two great commandments or the ten. The one in whom you are complete wants the law to be complete in you. And he that hath begun a good work will complete it in you. Our age is fraught with offerings Paul could have scarcely imagined. When you consider our media, our politics, even our hobbies, everything is radical. But are we? So there you have it. Colossians 2, 6, and 7. As you have received, so live, having been rooted in him and now being built up in him, established in the faith just as you were taught. That is how to be a Christian radical. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.